Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules Based Disorder exclusively here on Colin. This show is also available on an RSS feed, which you can find on Spotify and iTunes and other outlets where you can get podcasts. And as always with these episodes, I have this open for a chat. So anyone who wants to join, please feel free to join the queue and we can have a discussion. I'll respond to any questions people have. While I'm waiting for people to join the queue here at Colin, I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking about one of the most important stories today that is a massive blow to freedom of the press and freedom of speech around the world. And that is that journalist Julian Assange has been ordered to be extradited to the United States by the UK Home Office. The British government is trying to send the world's most famous journalist to a U.S. prison for the rest of his life. Julian Assange is facing 17 bogus charges and faces up to 175 years in prison. So obviously, no one can live for more than 200 years. He's going to die in prison if this goes through. Now, his legal team has said that they're going to appeal this decision and they have two weeks to do that. So by July, there will be a final decision on what's going to happen with Assange. I should stress that a previous British court had ruled that Assange should not be extradited because there was a very high probability of his death by suicide or other means. And that was overturned. And now the UK Home Secretary, Priti Patel, is pushing through his extradition. This is incredible. I mean, there's a few things that we should reflect on that are not, that are not emphasized enough. First of all, Julian Assange is not British and he's not a US citizen. He's not a citizen of either of these countries. He has been detained in Britain. He has been imprisoned in Britain since 2019 for three years. Before that, he was arbitrarily detained in Ecuador's embassy in London, a UN working group that is the legal, the United Nations legal experts on arbitrary detention. They published a legally binding decision that said that Julian Assange was being arbitrarily detained back when he was in the Ecuador embassy. And they said that he should be allowed to be free. He should allow, be allowed to leave without any, without any legal persecution by the British government and that he should be also given compensation. That was what the UN group on arbitrary detention said. That was six years ago now. And those decisions are legally binding. They are part of international law. Of course, the British government, which is a rogue regime, ignored that decision from the United Nations legal experts and imprisoned him on bogus charges, originally saying that it was just going to be this formulaic thing because he skipped bond and all of this. And then he was in for a year over the, over the term that he was allowed to be in for skipping bond. And then two years and now three years. And now the UK is extraditing him to the US where he's going to be thrown in prison for the rest of his life after going through a kangaroo court.
Now, what are his so-called crimes? Publishing truthful information in the public interest, i.e. journalism. That's the definition of journalism. Although journalism has been completely redefined by Western corporate media to mean propaganda on behalf of Western regimes. I mean, it's just so surreal. How does the U.S. government reserve itself the right to imprison a foreign journalist for publishing truthful, factual information in the public interest. It wasn't even in the United States. The U.S. government is saying that it is a dictator that rules the entire planet, and the U.S. government is establishing a precedent saying that if a journalist anywhere in the world publishes information, truthful, factual information, that the U.S. government doesn't like, it reserves itself the right to extradite that journalist and throw that journalist in prison for the rest of their lives. What can be more authoritarian than that? We constantly hear propaganda in the Western media talking about how China and Russia and Venezuela and Iran are all authoritarian, supposedly. Meanwhile, the U.S. government is saying that any journalist anywhere on Earth should be imprisoned if they publish factual information exposing U.S. government war crimes. Again, this is this point needs to be stressed. Julian Assange is an Australian. He never worked in the United States. All he ever did was visit the U.S. briefly, but he's not a U.S. citizen. He didn't publish WikiLeaks' information from based in the U.S. WikiLeaks was never based in the U.S. So... This is the end of journalism. I mean, there can't be journalism anymore because the U.S. government says if a journalist publishes information exposing its war crimes in any country on Earth, the U.S. government reserves itself the right to imprison that person for the rest of their lives. So people who say, you know, well, there's there are so many criticisms that are ridiculous about Assange. You know, no person is perfect, obviously, but p- people who say, well, you know, Assange is, he did this and he did that and he said this and blah, 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 blah. It's not about even about Assange, honestly, although I think many of those criticisms are ridiculous. This is about the fact that the U.S. government is, is killing journalism, a fatal blow to the heart of journalism. And the fact that there is so little outrage about this is really shocking of course, the U.S. government has multiple political prisoners. Leonard Peltier, one of the longest serving political prisoners in, in history, who is a Native American revolutionary who was imprisoned on bogus charges. Mumia Abu-Jamal, another decades-long political prisoner from the Black Liberation Movement, also a journalist. The difference is they were U.S. citizens, which doesn't in any way excuse it. They are political prisoners who have been just viciously repressed by the U.S. government for decades. But this is a whole new level. This is the U.S. saying anywhere on Earth, it has the right to imprison a journalist. I, I, honestly, I, I, I just I can't understand how people don't see this as just a massive monumental crisis that should be that people should be screaming up at the top of their lungs about. And then furthermore, another key aspect of this that makes it an even crazier, more ridiculous, more authoritarian story 
is the fact that the CIA was involved in rigging everything against Assange from the very beginning. We have incontrovertible, irrefutable evidence that the CIA was spying on Julian Assange. It made plans to potentially assassinate Julian Assange. And it was doing so when he was being held captive in the Ecuador embassy in London. We know that a company called UC Global, Undercover Global, which was a Spanish firm that was hired by Ecuador's government to provide so-called security for the embassy in London, was actually secretly working with the CIA and was spying on Assange and his lawyers and his visitors and others 24-7. They had cameras in the embassy and they even had microphones, including in the women's bathroom. They were spying on the embassy 24-7, listening to Assange's confidential conversations with his lawyers, which is a violation of all domestic law and international law, violating the confidentiality of an attorney and their client. And now, of course, the U.S. is trying to use this information to imprison Assange after illegally spying on his conversations with his lawyers. Just yet another layer of ridiculousness and and criminal criminality criminal behavior by the US government in this case we know that that they made plans to kill Julian Assange and they never carried them out obviously but they were made those plans this has been confirmed in mainstream media outlets including by the Spanish newspaper El País which is the top newspaper in Spain it was also confirmed by Yahoo News And there is a case going on in Spain's top court against the former Spanish military intelligence officer, David Morales, who was working for the CIA and who ran this company, UC Global. He is being charged in a Spanish court with criminal activity, violating numerous laws in spying on Julian Assange and and providing this information to the CIA. So we have all these documents from the Spanish court and the U.S. and the U.K. regimes, both of them have refused to abide by the Spanish court's recommendations. So they're showing how criminal that these regimes are. And I don't I'm so tired of people referring to the U.S. and the U.K. as democracies. I mean, first of all, the U.K. is still a monarchy. But even aside from that, these are not democracies. These are authoritarian regimes who are crucifying a foreign journalist for the so-called crime of publishing information about U.S. war crimes in Iraq, including the U.S. military murdering journalists, including a Reuters journalist, about U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and around the world. So I, you know, there's just... For me, this this issue could not be more important. I've been talking about it constantly for years and years. I, I did have the privilege of interviewing Julian Assange one time when he was trapped in the embassy. That was after the the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detentions ruling that he was being arbitrarily detained. So that was six years ago now. And it's just incredible that it's gotten to this point.
And of course, there's complete bipartisan support in Washington for crucifying this foreign journalist. So with that said, there's certainly more I could say about Assange, but I just wanted to begin with that because it is such an important topic and it's in the news today. Like I said, Julian Assange's legal team has two weeks to appeal this decision. Although if we see the past few years of the kangaroo court decisions and legal chicanery in the the British so-called justice system, I don't think we can be confident that they're going to allow this extradition to be appealed. It looks very likely that he's going to be sent to basically his death in the U.S. at the hands of the great democratic Uncle Sam. So on that note, I now invite anyone who is listening to go ahead and join the queue. I already have two questions. I'm going to start with uh, Martin or Martin. Go ahead. Hey, uh, Martin, you're muted, but I, I added you, so go ahead and unmute yourself. Uh, hey, Ben, how's it going? Good. How about you? I'm, I'm doing well, man. I, uh, thanks for telling me about the mute thing. I, I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I have, so I have, a, I have one question for you, but I, on the, since you brought up the Assange thing, I, I wanted to touch on. I mean, it's like, it's it's so depressing. Like I, I I feel like with that topic, I mean, it, it seems it's hard to grasp like what one should do about it. You know, like it and it feels like I don't know. I mean, that that's just my my take on it. Whenever it comes up, it's like it's so obvious. Like you said, the the obvious authoritarianism, but then there's no recourse. Like what you know? Yeah. So I don't know. If you had any comments on that, but I did have another thing to add if you wanted to. Yeah, well, briefly, I mean, I think that especially people in the U.S., but also around the world need to be organizing and protesting and and pressuring their governments and political leaders. I mean, especially in the context of the U.S., I think there needs to be a big mass movement of protests and, you know, uh, people doing occupations of of Washington and people's Congress, people's offices and like doing actual grassroots activism and civil disobedience, because this, first of all, is not really even discussed by the political class in Washington. I can't remember the last time I heard a single politician talk about Julian Assange. So it needs to be yeah. made an issue. And also, I mean, the U.S. Justice Department there have been protests out in Washington, but I think there needs to be like, like it, it needs to be shut down, like protests to, to prevent them. Like this is what people did back in the 1960s and 70s with civil disobedience. And, you know, obviously there is legal repercussions for people, but I mean, there's a long history in the civil rights movement of doing this kind of civil disobedience. And honestly, I think as as difficult as this case would be, I think it's still easier than accomplishing many of the things that were accomplished in the civil rights movement, which were certainly much bigger and more daunting problems than just one journalist being thrown in prison. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, people are just very disconnected, you know, from one another. It's like, yeah. And there's just so but, little but, information out there about it. Right, 
Right. Because, you know, when it, when it is reported in mainstream media, there's always the narrative that Julian Assange is supposedly like a Russian asset, which CNN pushed this nonsense, or that, you know, he it's he's the responsibility. He's the it's because of him that Donald Trump won the election and completely ignoring, you know, how Hillary Clinton was the second least popular candidate in history. So and he, because he's been so vilified with a lot of misleading claims, it, do, it make, definitely makes him an easier target. That's definitely true. I, that's definitely true. Even with that, though, I wonder, like, even if, you know, it was a saint, like someone who was a saint in everyone's eyes, it's like, it's hard to imagine that type of protest movement that you're describing. But, yeah, I mean, on a related, that kind of actually get, is related to my question, I, and that might seem unrelated, but I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on, uh, you know, there's this, like, somewhat, this like kind of minor, I mean, I guess it's a significant resurgence in, in the labor movement over the past year or so with just like the, you know, really the Starbucks, this infiltration of unions a little more into retail, right, into the retail service sector in the U.S., um, especially with the Starbucks uh, union movement. I, I guess I, I was wondering what your thoughts were. Like, personally, I, I'm a little pessimistic of the idea of like organizing under the Wagner Act. It seems like ever since like the NLRA was passed, like that's a high point for labor and it's just gone downhill. And I'm I know you have a lot more knowledge of like alternative kind of visions of of what like labor organizing can look like across the world and I don't know, I, I thought maybe I you would have some thoughts on like if you're optimistic about the current state of the u.s labor movement like the trajectory or if it's if it seems like a flash in the pan or just any general thoughts how it compares to overseas yeah well great question i mean i i am optimistic because it's hard to have very high expectations so when there are breakthroughs in the u.s labor movement i think we have to kind of be optimistic because it can't really get much worse if you look at just the just a graph of the percentage of of union representation in both not just p- private, but also even public sector jobs. I mean, it's since the seventies, it's been a precipitous decline. It just goes down, 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 down. Yeah. I think the past few years might probably be the first time in history where it's, it's either flatlining or slightly going up. So I think, you know, we should be a little optimistic now you know, there, there are, there's a lot to criticize about the history of the U.S. labor movement, especially when it comes to international politics. But I also think yeah. we're, at, we're at such a point where the labor movement is so weak and barely surviving that that's not the issue that it used to be. Like in the 60s and 70s, at the kind of the peak of the U.S. labor movement, there was a very clear attempt by intelligence agencies, by the U.S you know, U.S. government as a whole by even corporations to kind of infiltrate union leadership and and turn them certainly very anti-communist, but also just in general kind of make more right wing, more conservative unions. But at this point, there are so few unions representing such a small percentage of the workforce that I think people just need to be unionized. And then we can talk about improving the unions like, you know, there is a, a very long history of this idea of the labor aristocracy and very compromised union leaders. And 
I'm not saying that they shouldn't be criticized. I mean, I've certainly criticized the AFL-CIO, which often plays a pretty nefarious role internationally. But yeah. again, you, you kind of have to have a series of priorities. And given how weak they are in, the, in, in general, I think, you know, anything we can do to encourage more people unionizing is a good thing, except I think maybe we could draw a line at like the weapons industry. And that's an area where certainly, you know, you'll see like the AFL-CIO and some other more conservative unions will, will be like, yeah, we should, we should, you know, we should uh, organize the shop floor of Raytheon and Northrop Grumman. I'm like, no, we, <laughs> we have to draw a line somewhere. Those jobs shouldn't exist. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, especially retail. Shut it down. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, uh, I think of all the industries that are being unionized, retail and and fast food. You know, Starbucks being kind of part of that. Also, Amazon. That is that's those are the best and most important industries to unionize because the people yeah. there are treated in horrible conditions. I have friends who have worked at Amazon warehouses. Like there used to be a, a really big one outside Lexington, Kentucky, and I knew a bunch of people who worked there. And like they were working in awful conditions and Amazon is just such a monumental colossus in terms of economic and also political power that unionizing that is really great news. I strongly support that. And, and Starbucks, I mean, it's also good because Starbucks has this reputation of being like a supposedly progressive corporation. They claim that they give be good benefits to their workers. So I think, I think there shouldn't really be a like dispute that it's a good thing that these retail industries are being unionized. There are other industries maybe that we can have more of a debate about, but in general, I, I'm pretty optimistic. And, and also I think if you look at the new generation of younger labor organizers, because a lot of them were born toward the end of, or even after the end of the first cold war, like in the late eighties and nineties, I think a lot of them, have pretty good politics and they're not like the old school blue dog Democrat or like anti-communist social, social Democrat yeah. labor organizers. So it's not as big of an issue as it used to be. Although of course we can bet that if the labor movement does pick, get a lot of traction and becomes more powerful, there will be a lot of attempts yet again to co-opt the movement. And we see that the Biden administration is trying that where they invited Chris Smalls to the White House to do a photo op in the Oval Office. And, of course, that's after the Biden administration did nothing to help Amazon workers trying to organize. So, you know, there's always going to be those attempts at co-optation. But, again, you have to be powerful to be co-opted. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, I agree with everything there. Like, I, that, and especially on the retail point, like, yeah, the retail sector is the place I mean, that's where all the jobs are in this country now. But the, I guess my concern is more, I worry that, like, there's almost like a predetermined, like, uh, the U.S. model labor organizing as codified in the law, because everyone's organizing on this specific model that's, like, it's very, like, shop-by-shop shop based. You know, whereas, like, like you know, as a counterexample, and I'm not, I, I'm not incredibly educated about it, but I, I get the impression that, like, let's say the union movement in Bolivia is much more, like, sector-wide, like, across yeah. whole industries, right? And I, I worry that, like, and maybe this won't be a problem because we have so many monopolies, so, like, if you just unionize, like, if you just unionize Amazon, then you unionize the whole transportation sector, but, or logistics sector, but I guess that's, I'm concerned that there are, like, material constraints, like, built into the 
type of like organizing in the U.S. Uh, union organizing that that like almost predetermines a uh, almost that co-optation, right? Or it predetermines that you're you're relying on a specific more conservative model. But I mean, I don't know. That's like my concerns. But I hear everything you said. I I, I agree with it. Well, that's a really good point. I I think you're right that it's kind of baked into the cake of the law of, of labor law in the U S where it is set up to kind of fragmentize and, and atomize workers and, and make it more shop oriented instead of sector wide. I think there is an attempt with Amazon and Starbucks because these, and also McDonald's because these corporate chains are so big, there is an attempt to try to spread it a bit broader, but you're right. I think that, if you think about the way that labor law is set up and, and the Wagner Act, it does in, incentivize thinking about things on a shop floor basis. And if you look at the way a lot of unions are organized by their locals, instead of like thinking about it more generally as an industry, but you think about it instead of as the locals and the locals have some autonomy, which is, is sometimes good a good thing. But I think you are right that I haven't actually thought about that a lot. I, I should investigate that more. But one thing I should add is that in the case of Bolivia, a lot of the organized workforce is more informal, where especially, I mean, the most the most well-organized sector in Bolivia is agriculture and coca farmers, which is where Evo Morales comes out of. And they're the kind of the base of the, the MAS party, the movement towards socialism party. And a lot of those people, I mean, they're, they don't really have bosses, really. I mean, it's yeah. it's a lot of small agriculture. And if there are kind of bosses the the company is not like a massive international corporate conglomerate with a lot of power it's like a local company that it's much easier to fight against so in the case of the u.s there's also just the issue of being up against these corporate colossals like a colossi i guess you would say plural colossus and i guess so (laughs) yeah and like you think about how much, how many resources Amazon and Starbucks have, which are these massive international corporate conglomerates compared to like, you know, a Bolivian mining company. And, and also, I mean, in the context of like Bolivia or, um, you know, I, I, I know the Nicaraguan labor scene pretty well, uh, pr- pretty well. And the, the companies that their people, the people are like fighting against are not big companies. I mean, they sometimes are like affiliates of a larger corporation, but usually it represents like local interests. And it's, and of course, they have governments that are willing to back the labor movement and are favorable to, to workers. So in the U.S., it's just it's it's really difficult because you have a government that is completely antagonistic to labor rights. And we saw that the Trump administration this didn't get that much attention, but there were a series of precedents established that basically destroyed the NLRB as weak and as compromised as it already was. So in the U.S., it's this two-pronged problem where you have a government, even a democratic government, is not willing to defend you. And then you have massive corporations with significant power. So it is really hard to compare those. And, And I agree that you know, it's kind of baked into the cake to make the framework for organizing very weak. And that's why I'm not like a syndicalist. I mean, I, I think unions are very important and I strongly support unions, but I don't agree with like this anarcho-syndicalist idea, the way that we're going to have 
revolutionary transformation is everyone's going to be unionized and like they'll dissolve the state. No, I mean, it's the state and corporate power state, which is under capitalism controlled by a dictatorship of the capitalist class. They're going to do anything they can to fragment and weaken the labor movement. So although we should strengthen that, it needs to be, we should do anything we can to strengthen the labor movement. It needs to be part of a larger political struggle. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I, if you end up looking into, again, yeah, so I agree. The way I see the Wagner Act is kind of like almost a, co- a co-optation in and of itself. Like, yeah. if you have a more radical labor movement before that, and it's like, oh, well, we'll, we'll codify you being able to get uh, unions under the law, and we'll support this union in organizing, but by doing that, it almost like, by necessity, you like, takes away and that's when you know i mean you know the story right that's that's kind of when you see this like more conservative turn in the aflcio with you know gompers and, and all that but but I, if you end up uh, do looking into it and, and seeing like the the contrast between different kind of successes abroad and here and even in this country i'd love to to hear uh thoughts about it because i always appreciate your analysis on everything so um, yeah thank you i so I'm not an expert on, on labor organizing. I know people who know more, but um, I do know that, that um, Howard Zinn had wrote a lot about the history of the U.S. labor movement. And I always, I, from what I know about U.S. labor history, I always learned a ton from Zinn. He, he was great in that. Cool. Yeah, me too, honestly. I actually, I mean, for some background, I went to, I was, went to law school a few years ago with the idea of being a labor lawyer. So I, I uh, I have some history from that, and like, and yeah, from Zen, obviously. I mean, he's great on any sort of people's movement. Uh, but, but yeah, dude, I don't want to keep. A, I don't want to hold up the other callers. I know you gotta uh, get the people, but uh, like I said, I always appreciate your insights. Thanks, thanks, Martin. Talk to you later. All right, dude. Good, good talking. Bye, bye. All right, I'm going to now go to Andrew. And uh, sorry, a few days ago, Andrew, I wasn't able to take your call. I had to, I had to run, but uh, now you're, the floor is yours. Go ahead. Hey, no worries. I forgot what my question was the other day, anyways. So <laughs> it's no worries. Um, I was I I had a a couple of thoughts about the Sanj case when you brought that up, but actually, when you started talking about unions, I had some other thoughts and. So I'm originally from Seattle, where there's a, a big industrial district along the Duwamish River there, and there's a lot of that land was kind of uh... Hey, I don't Andrew, I think you cut out or I don't know if you accidentally got you muted yourself. I don't hear you anymore. I don't know if you can hear me. Huh. Andrew? So, it looks like, uh, looks like we lost him because I can't, at least I can't hear him. So, Andrew, um, if you can hear me, I'm sorry about this. But I'm gonna go ahead and jump to the next caller. Oh, there we go. Let me try it. Let me try again. Andrew, uh, try again. Hey, there sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hey, sorry, my app just crashed. Thanks for taking me back on. No worries. Um, 
I was just going to say that, so this guy, I think he's, you know, probably a, a rarity. I think likely the majority of people who work... Oh, wait, did you hear what I said about my physics teacher? No, sorry. It oh. cut out when you said that you're from Seattle and there's like a manufacturing district near the river. Oh, yeah. So a lot of that manufacturing district is Boeing. And when I was in high school, I had a physics teacher who was working at Boeing and he told us vaguely but what he said was that he had a an ethical dilemma that caused him to leave Boeing because he he couldn't justify what he was doing for work um and I think that uh you know I took that to mean he was manufacturing weapons or some 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 portion of a weapon system that later caused him pause and so you mentioned that maybe organizing Raytheon or whatnot is is not worthwhile and I guess I would agree to an extent that you know, I would if I had to choose between putting resources and time into assisting like Amazon and Starbucks unions, I would probably go for them uh, first. But if we get to the point where the labor movement grows in the U.S., I think it could be worthwhile trying to organize um, some of these weapons manufacturing companies because there were also there were other companies like I don't know if it was Tesla or GE and uh, some some kind of manufacturing um, sector of one of those companies wanted to manufacture ventilators during covid and, and a bunch of their employees expressed that desire very strongly and the company kind of pushed back so i i do actually see some utility in um in organizing the weapons industry because you could have people say you know en mass actually we're not down with manufacturing weapons of war with our expertise we'd rather manufacture ocean exploration vehicles or uh, you know, aerospace vehicles that are only for research or or whatever, interplanetary travel or something. So, I, not that I think that that's immediately attainable, but I will say that I do, I do see that, you know, at least with that one teacher who, again, is just one person, it's not a large trend that I know of, um, he couldn't bring himself to keep doing that work and turn down a lot more money to come and teach at my uh, very annoying high school. So... <laughs> I, I imagine there's more people out there like that. And also a lot of these unions at Boeing in Seattle, they've gotten screwed over. They've kind of signed deals with Boeing and the city and the state have signed deals with Boeing and the unions saying that they'll give Boeing a huge tax break or some other kind of subsidy or incentive if they promise to keep jobs in the state and then they'll ship them within the next couple of years over to Ohio or something. So I, I do think that within the weapons industry, you can find... Um, maybe more to work with than we might than we might initially think yeah i mean this this is one of those things where you you can say that you can find a silver lining but i also just think that these companies should be dissolved they shouldn't exist and if the the very qualified workers they have this background and they can build you know non-military vehicles and stuff for scientific research and all that I mean, that should be like folded into another company. Like it, it, it reminds me of the debate. I'm, I'm not accusing you of this, but it reminds me of the debate around health insurance companies and the people who say like, um, oh, well, what are we going to do? Like with all of the thousands and thousands of workers who work for these health insurance companies whose job are basically whose job is basically to, to like to give people the runaround and like make sure that they don't get their their health services provided to them at a fair price and try to find like a loophole and it's all this administrative overhead. And the, the answer is that we shouldn't like just unionize those jobs and like give them more power. We should just like 
dissolve those companies, and then there should be some kind of program, some government program to help help find them new jobs, and ideally even create like a new a new company that could, you know, uh, in the case of the health industry, that could like oversee some kind of, you know, healthcare and Medicare for all and all of that. So. I think if we're going to try to find like a silver lining in these awful military industrial complex companies about what they could potentially do better, I think we can also just try to think more outside of the box and think about what those workers there could be doing in a better industry. <laughs> that those are my thoughts. I think that's a very good. Uh, I think that's a very good point. Um, I think. I think that uh, also what you said about not being all on board with like syndicalism I think that's a very good point um, I, I would have disagreed with you a year or so ago but since I've been living in Mexico and learning more about Morena and also just generally from your work and others like how Sacha News and Telesur like more about Latin America a lot of these countries that have had a socialist um, or at least in Mexico's case I don't know if you could call Morena totally socialist sort of a yeah, more progressive push in the government yeah, they don't have a strong union movement here. I mean, the, the union, the situation with unions in Mexico is very similar to the U.S., where they've been declining in membership for decades and they've been heavily co-opted. And a lot of them are really, you know, the the so-called uh, spokespeople or leaders of these unions are kind of de facto employees of management that are working to to soften any concessions that the company would have to make. And even with that being the case, and with rampant electoral corruption and all this other stuff in six years they managed to build morena and go from you know from being completely governed by a, a sort of rotating uh, carousel of three neoliberal parties to having a another party that's really slowly dominating you know it, it immediately won the the majorities in the bicameral legislative house and the presidency so that's not slow but then after that they're still consolidating more and more support in the country and they're nationalizing industries and the governorships you know yeah they just won four and there's a possibility they'll win mexico state pretty soon here um and i've actually been around to a few different uh like meetings where morena will go around and talk with people in a certain uh town for instance a certain municipality that has privatized water resources and and, you know, there, there'll be one city that that people will pay, like, 300 pesos a year for their water utilities for their home. Uh, and just, like, a couple of miles down the road, there's another municipality where it's been more privatized and they pay 5,000 pesos a year for the same or poorer quality water utility. And I also see them meeting with, like, groups of farmers who don't have any party affiliation or they've kind of just without a whole lot of thought into it been voting for the older neoliberal parties and when I, when I see them talk to people they haven't interacted with before it's almost never a negative reaction it's almost always like oh yeah we definitely want that or shit we didn't know that you guys created this um this like agricultural program that's helped us out a little bit and so i i think like that's actually that whole picture has steered me back the other way from thinking that we need you know in order in order to gain any better concessions for working people or um, economic measures generally or reigning in imperialism in the United States, I would have told you a year ago that, well, we just need to have as strong of a union movement and, and, and community organizations as there were in the, in the Gilded Age in order to make a dent. But actually, I've seen Mexico without having that 
sort of independent infrastructure has done a lot. So I, I don't know. I just think I, I'm now I'm 50, 50. I'm like, yeah, go for it. If you want to, if you want to do unionization, I see a lot of value in that, but I'm not going to say to people who are trying to start third parties, like, Oh, you're just wasting your time. Cause I've seen so many results, like positive results. Yeah, and, and it's not either or, of course. I'm glad you talked about the situation in Mexico. Morena is a very complicated party, but it does have its roots in the social movements, in, in people who, who rebelled against like the PRD party, the center-left party that became neoliberal. And, and of course, it was built around a personality, around AMLO himself. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a good model that is more that is more similar to something that could happen in the U.S. But I think it's also worth pointing out that one of the differences with the labor movement in Mexico is that the majority of people in Mexico work in the informal sector, whereas in the U.S. still, although that number is, is declining, most people technically work in the formal sector, although we've seen that with the rise of these apps like Uber and um, food delivery and all of this where people, they don't really have formal work. They are working with like wages as basically precariat, as precarial labor, as like the precariat, precarious labor. So I, that is actually more similar to Mexico and a lot of parts of Latin America where you don't work for a company and you don't pay, you don't get a paycheck that goes through a bank or the government. You just get pay based on the work you do. And, and that obviously makes it harder to organize. So in the case of the Mexican labor movement, you know, it's very difficult to organize the informal sector and people see that in the U S as well. But I, I I think another quick point that I wanted to make about the importance of building up your own party is if you look at all of the leftist part movements in Latin America that took power, in Brazil, which is the sixth largest country on earth, massive country, 200 million people. In Brazil, it was the Workers' Party that was created over 30 years in bringing together the grassroots movements and unions and intellectuals and activists. In Venezuela, it was at first Chavez as a strong personality, but then he created like the Fifth Republic movement, and then that eventually became the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, which it was called the United Socialist Party of Venezuela because it brought in existing smaller parties and movements and combined them. And then you also, in Bolivia, you have the movement towards Socialism Party, which was a completely new party that it, the full name of the of the MAS party is M-A-S-I-P-S-P, which is Instrumento Popular Para la soberanía, no, instrumento político de la soberanía de los pueblos, which is the um, political instrument of the sovereignty of the peoples. So it was seen as the political arm of the social movements. And in the case of Ecuador, you had the creation of the Alianza País Party, which was an alliance of left-wing parties and movements that was behind Correa. And every every country, basically, it was always a new party that in many cases was kind of like an alliance bringing together social movements and smaller parties, which is, of course, what Marina did in Mexico. So there's a lot we can learn from them. And especially in the case of Mexico and Brazil, which are very large countries with big economies 
and also very much multiracial countries, especially Brazil, which has issues with, you know, white supremacy in the context like like the U.S. does. So you can there's also parallels you can make to, you know, to the social problem of like white supremacy and exclusion and all that. I think there's a lot that could be learned from those cases. So, yeah, good comments. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Do you mind if I ask you one one other question, or should we move on to the the last two? Go ahead. Yeah. How much time you have? Yeah, I have some time. Um, I have like fifteen more minutes. So go ahead. Okay, I'll try and keep it quick. So, um, with regards to what you said about like, what do we do to help out Assange? I I definitely agree. There needs to be people, you know, completely bogging down the phone lines, being in the offices, being in the streets around all of the representatives that they can to force them to try and stop this from the U.S. side. But I. I, I see more of a possibility of that type of strategy working in the UK just because there seems to be the propaganda there against Assange seems to be less effective. Um, but also, I, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about why is there in Spain a challenge to the treatment of Assange, a challenge to the intelligence apparatuses there? Because I don't really know a lot about the politics of Spain. I know that they do have a... Um, they do have a stronger, like, communist and socialist parties than, than obviously, in the United States. But I also know they have this history of fascism and a return of monarchy. And I know that the Spanish intelligence service is is certainly not to be trusted. So I'm curious, in your opinion, why, you know, why is this is this challenge to the the attack on Assange more possible? What's what's driving that in Spain that's not present in the U.S. or the U.K.? Well, the case in Spain is not directly about Assange. It's about this company, UC Global. And basically, the way I see it is kind of a a way for Spain kind of to show a little backbone and a little sovereignty. Because this guy, David Morales, who is a former military intelligence officer from Spain, I mean, he just blatantly violated so many Spanish laws and basically just sold out his own country using Spanish intelligence resources and, and government resources to spy on behalf of the CIA. So while, of course, the CIA was spying on Assange, it was also in some ways spying on Spain, right? So I think it's kind of a way for Spain to show a little backbone, a little bit and say like, you know, come on, CIA, you have to draw a line at violating our laws. We're, we're your ally, aren't we? And it reminds me of the time when the NSA was exposed for listening to Angela Merkel's phone calls. That was, of course, the former longtime chancellor of Germany. And when Germany discovered that, it, they were very angry. And obviously, it didn't change that much between the relationship, which is still a pretty subordinate relationship between Germany or Spain and the U.S. It's clear who's, the, who's in charge. But it's it's like a small way for those countries to kind of push back. As for the Spanish left, I mean, the government is is pretty awful. Uh, the PSOE party, PSOE, which technically is the Workers Socialist Party, but it's not of workers and it's not socialist. It's a neoliberal party. And there was a kind of coalition that was formed with Podemos, which I think was a really big mistake that kind of led to the historical defeat of Podemos as a significant political force. They decided to come in as a junior partner in the coalition with the neoliberal PSOE. And they were 
their reputational damage has been catastrophic to Podemos because, you know, Podemos was one of those parties that did have its origins in social movements and the labor movement and the left. And this is one of those historic compromises that we see again and again, where a leader, the leadership of a left-wing party decides to compromise for scraps and join a coalition government with the centrist neoliberal forces and was wrecked. I mean, it would be like Morena deciding to join with like the PRI or something in Mexico and think about how much political damage that would have done to Morena. It probably would ever would have attained, attained power. So in the context of Spain, I mean, there is a long history of a left. The Communist Party is not tiny, but it's not very powerful. It's bigger than in other countries, but it does have links in the labor movement, but it's not a significant political force. The so-called Worker Socialist Party, the mainstream party, is awful and neoliberal. And, you know, you had Podemos, which was, which kind of bridges the, like the center left to the more radical left. There is a kind of variety there. I think they just made this, this historic mistake. And we saw that, that Iglesias, Paolo Iglesias, who was, uh, like, had, he technically had some kind of like fake power sharing agreement with with the president i mean he resigned after this historic defeat in local elections so as for the spanish left i don't unfortunately see them going very far and unfortunately not to be pessimistic but realistically if i assess what's going on in spain i think it's much more likely that the far right vox party vox which is funny it's the same name as you know like the neoliberal walmart funded democrat website in the u.s uh, Vox, I think they have much more of a chance of taking power in the near term, which is very scary considering, as you acknowledge, you know, Spain had a fascist dictatorship between 1939 and 1975-ish to really 1981. So it, it really, for me, it just shows that the idea that like Europe is, is like the bastion for the left is, is ridiculous. And, there was this kind of fad in the U.S. about five to ten years ago, you know, with Syriza and Podemos and Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's, I mean, of all of them, he's the weakest. Sorry, he's the least weak of all of those left-wing leaders in Europe. And, you know, we saw what happened to Corbyn. There was like this kind of fetishization of European left-wing projects, and they were pretty much all defeated. So there's lessons we can learn, but I... I don't think people should really look toward Europe for lessons on how the left can take power. I think you're right in looking more at Latin America, which is obviously a much better example. Right on. Thanks for that, Ben. Appreciate the history. Now I got to do a little more reading. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Great. So um, I'm going to, I'll, I'll be on probably for like 15 more minutes, depending on these last two questions. So um, I'm going to, I'm just going to finish with these last two so sorry if someone else wanted to join. I do two of these calls a week. They're usually around an hour. So um, I'm just going to conclude with two questions here. here. Here's the first one from Maximilian. Hey, Benjamin. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to touch on, you know, these so-called freedom of speech absolutists like Elon Musk and Jordan Peterson, who... <laughs> who just haven't touched on Assange whatsoever, 
you know, and even Trump, I mean, there was a fever pitch trying to get him to pardon Assange at the end of his presidency. And, you know, f since Trump is considered such a rogue president, you know, why did he not really care at all? I mean, if the 2016 DNC leaks were that substantial and helped him so much, why didn't he pardon Assange? And I think it really shows the hypocrisy of this, these sort of freedom of speech absolutists. Um, additionally, and I don't really know what happened, but like Pompeo was part of Secretary of State when Assange got arrested, wasn't he? Did he have any role in that? Um, yeah, well, well, we know. Um, I strongly agree with your comments about so-called freedom of speech supporters, and I'll go to that in a second. I think it's a great mm -hmm. point. But as for Pompeo, well, Pompeo was also CIA director. And by the way, I think we should keep in mind that the fact that Pompeo was CIA director and then became head of the State Department really shows this revolving door between the CIA and, and state and how basically they're the same thing. And we also see this now with Biden's State Department spokesman, um, Ned Price. Ned Price was also a CIA agent. So, you know, the irony of that is that Pompeo was basically still CIA. I mean, you know, you know what they say, once CIA, always CIA. So Pompeo was actually brought up in the Spanish court case against the Spanish company um, UC Global over its spying because Pompeo was violating Spanish law by working with the Spanish company when he was CIA director. But then he also became secretary of state. So obviously that became a, a, a point of diplomatic conflict between Spain and the U.S. And Pompeo basically confirms everything that the CIA was doing against Assange. And Pompeo has now also threatened the people who exposed this. And he's also threatened to like try to take legal action against the journalists who publish this information. So it just really shows the lawlessness of these people. They're just thugs. They're like mafiosos. Um, I don't know if you had anything else. I'll, I'll, I'm going to respond to your, I'll, I'll respond to the thing about freedom of speech. I, I really agree. I'm glad you pointed this out. First of all, it shows that Trump was a total fraud. This whole idea of like right-wing populism. You know, I, I've been talking more about this nonsense because I kind of ignored them for a while because I thought they were like not going to, they were too fringe. They were not going to get any significant um, power. But we do see now this try to this attempt to rebrand the Republican Party as like populist. We see this guy, Jim Banks, who's this congressman in Indiana, who's calling the GOP the working class party, which is insane. And meanwhile, just today, actually, I tweeted about this. He bragged about introducing legislation in the House to send billions of dollars of weapons to Taiwan to pre prepare for a war with China pointing out the situation in Ukraine. So, I mean, th that's their that's their idea of populism is starting a war with China instead of a war with Russia. And the free speech thing is what they've really cleverly capitalized on because, I mean, it's true, Democrats have been really aggressively cracking down on freedom of speech, but it just shows how they're not actually these right-wing frauds who claim to be supporters of freedom of speech they don't actually care about freedom of speech when it matters, when it actually is difficult to defend, when it causes political damage, as we see with Trump. 
who was a complete coward. He could have pardoned Assange. He refused to because he was a coward, just as he refused to withdraw troops from Syria because he was a coward. He he refused to refused to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, and he also was a he just surrounded himself with a bunch of neocons while claiming that he was taking on the neocons. You know how many of these freedom of speech people, these right wing so called populists, claimed that Trump would take on the neocons. And then he appointed art neocon John Bolton as his national security advisor. So for me, it shows that the people who talk about freedom of speech constantly, they actually are just doing that because it's part of the culture war. They don't really care about freedom of speech. And you can see this also in, in how they, they support anti-BDS laws. So in the case of Florida, this is a good example. Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who claims to be like a populist and like a Trump Republican, and he talks about freedom of speech, and he's now doing this whole anti-Disney thing and like whatever, like the don't say gay bill. I mean, he's been like one of these free speech guys, but at the same time, he gives all these speeches boasting about how he's the most anti-BDS governor in the U.S. and how he's trying to criminalize BDS everywhere and basically making it like illegal to criticize Israel. And of course, Barry Weiss, the former New York Times pundit and sophist, I mean, she has also rebranded herself as like a free speech person. And she's made her entire career trying to cancel Palestinians for daring to criticize Israel. So yeah, I agree with you. Like, that's why I talk about how the U.S. government is threatening freedom of speech, but I, I would never identify myself as like a freedom of speech activist because I think that's, that's a, that's mis, it's a misleading strategy. I think it, it misunderstands the problem. The problem is the, the, the attacks on freedom of speech are not the root of the problem. They are part of the larger problem. And that's why we need like a, a revolutionary political transformation because the, the solution to these problems is not just like giving billionaires more control like Elon Musk, who claim that they're committed to freedom of speech. That's not that's the solution that these so-called freedom of speech activists are proposing is giving more control in the in putting concentrating more control in the hands of billionaires, as opposed to having a complete transformation of the political and economic system. So freedom of speech actually matters. Because if you actually have more economic democracy and you're not controlled by a bunch of billionaires, then you're actually, your voice actually matters more. Whereas if you have a billionaire in charge of everything who says that he's a freedom of speech absolutist, maybe he won't suspend you on the platform, but you don't have actually any influence over your society. So in that case, your freedom of speech doesn't even matter because your voice doesn't matter. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. And as for the BDS thing, I have personal experience with that because in university I was part of uh, the BDS movement and I even, you know, volunteered with the International Solidarity Movement in the West Bank in 2014 uh, before Operation Protective Edge began in Gaza. Um, you know, a lot of the lead up to that happened in the West Bank. I was there for that. So when I came to university, I was trying to show my photographs and show my reporting and basically i just got shut down i had to get everything like censored through uh like hillel which was the jewish group on campus i had to send everything that i wanted to show publicly to them and the student union really cracked down 
on our group. So, you know, I, I just have experience with that. I, I definitely agree with everything you were saying. Um, and I do have one other quick question, yeah, go ahead. Uh, which was like, what, what were the characteristics that made Assange so effective and sort of special as a journalist? Um, and I'm not really sure about his origin. And I'm wondering if you maybe have any insights into that. Thanks. Yeah, well, the thing about Assange, this is another good example of how it's not really even about him as an individual. It's not really so much that he's like some unique, perfect journalist who like is the, is better than everyone else. It's that his journalistic outlet, WikiLeaks, just got some of the best scoops in deck in centuries, really, in the history of journalism. They got access, for for instance, thanks to Chelsea Manning. I mean, just sacrificing her. Uh, years of her life that she spent in prison, they got her leaks exposing the U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. But even more than that, I mean, that gets a lot of attention because that's why the U.S. is trying to imprison Assange. But also, I think the most significant leak that, that WikiLeaks got was years of the entire U.S. State Department's diplomatic corps. And we still don't really know where those came from. But WikiLeaks published literally millions of State Department cables from around the world. And there's a really good book about this that was published by Verso, which is called The WikiLeaks Files. And each chapter is about a different country. And they have each chapter was written by a specialist on that country. And that specialist went through the WikiLeaks documents from that were pu published from the US State Department for that country. And there was like a chapter on Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Venezuela, Russia. And there's so much information in there. I, as a journalist, I've written dozens of articles using those cables from WikiLeaks. And, you know, Assange, I think because of his connections in like the computer tech world, he knew people who were like leakers and who were into like um, protecting sources and all of that. And he was able to get these amazing leaks that journalists would salivate over. And then the other significant difference is that WikiLeaks published those documents for the entire world to use, which is, which is, was the first time I'd ever seen that done because usually if a major newspaper gets access to some of these leaks, you know, like the New York times or something, they're not going to publish those documents for everyone else to use. They will, they will decide what is newsworthy? And of course, they'll, all, they'll often leave out information if it challenges so-called U.S. national security interests. So another significant thing that Assange did, and again, this is just something that, that WikiLeaks did, and he created and ran WikiLeaks, is that they facilitated citizen journalism and said, look, we have millions of documents here, and we invite journalists around the world to use them. And that was pretty revolutionary. And I think that's another significant reason the U.S. is trying to punish him because they're trying to say that anyone in the future who tries to do this is going to face consequences. I totally agree. Thank you so much for answering my questions. Yeah, Take for care. sure. Thanks, Maximilian. All right. Um, so I did. I do see that Pete joined. Um, I, I have to leave pretty soon, so I, I will take the question from Derek. And then, Pete, I'll, I'll really briefly take your question, but I, I really only have about 10 more minutes here. So I'm going to go to Derek. Here's Derek Berger. Go ahead. Hey, thanks. 
um, for fitting me in there. For sure. Um, I keep uh, I keep coming across all kinds of self-described leftists, um, socialists, revolutionaries, you know, a wide variety of badasses uh, that claim to be uh, very much, you know, on the side of labor. Um, and I keep noticing that most, the vast majority of these people are thoroughly uninformed about the progressive era in the United States, uh, the early 1900. Um, you, you and Andrew, previous uh, caller, were talking about labor unions when I, or the labor movement um, that's going on now, maybe a little bit. It was hard to tell. I just kind of popped in. Um, but you were talking about the importance of labor movements and unions, that sort of thing. Um, I'm, I'm curious if, if you're familiar with Victor Berger from Milwaukee um, and, you know, his influence on, uh, well, politics uh, nationwide, but uh, in Milwaukee itself and how that how it might be relevant if you do, if you are familiar with them, uh, how that could be, in my opinion, incredibly relevant, but, you know, it's up to you to determine um, to what's going on now. Uh, to me, it, it seems like a blueprint has already been provided on how to go about uh, creating successful labor movements, um, you know, uh, largely because of Victor Berger's influence and work. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, I, if you've heard of him, you've heard of him. If you haven't, that's, that's fine for you. Yeah, I do know that uh, my understanding is he was like a major socialist party leader and he was in Congress. But from what I vaguely know about him, and, and I'm certainly not an expert on Victor Berger, I, I think that he was also, he's one of the leftists who was, um, who was persecuted by the U.S. government in the first Red Scare using the Espionage Act. So um, people probably know that the Espionage Act was used to like crush the U.S. left. And uh, by the way, I should mention related to Assange, Assange is also being targeted with the Espionage Act. So we see this long history of the U.S. government using this legislation to crack down on dissidents. But in, in terms of in I guess and I know he I know he was a congressman, but I don't really know too much about his like proposed model or anything. So maybe well, do you want to share first, a little bit? Yeah, I mean, basically, this is years ago. I, I read about Victor Berger, and I was stunned by how uh, significant a figure he was, and how increasingly relevant he has become uh, as a as a figure um, that you know concerns all kinds of issues, whatever that's going on now. But uh, you know, first uh, a socialist member of Congress. I'm not a socialist, by the way, or I'm not a capitalist. Um, but he did a lot of great work and he showed the way on a lot of important issues. Um, so anyway, uh, first the socialist member of Congress, uh, co-founder of the socialist party with Eugene Debs. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody and their grandmother quotes Eugene Debs, but they've never even heard of Victor Berger. This is my experience over and over. It'd be like, if, like if you talk to capitalists all the time and they've never heard of Adam Smith, it's yeah. ridiculous. You know what I mean? So, I, I think that needs to be fixed personally. Uh, people need to become more informed in a way that's meaningful instead of flighty and scatterbrained and, you know, 
this this sort of popularity contest where it's just about trying to influence each other and show each other they got all kinds of socialist street cred, you know, like actually know something and try to fucking, you know, dig a little deeper. Um, I mean, the reason why it's more relevant is because, first of all, it took place in the United States. So all kinds, not not to diminish all kinds of other movements all over the world that are relevant, but obviously I, I think this one would be incredibly relevant. You know, the progressive era in the United States, it concerned Americans and American sensibilities, what motivates them, what inspires them, what makes them angry, you know, uh, motivated. But, um, okay, so he, he, uh, went after corruption in a way that, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was probably inspired by, you know what I mean? Um, he, uh, established the first uh, old age pension. Essentially, he created Social Security long before FDR even had a whiff of the idea. It was progressives that already believed in the work that was being done in Milwaukee by Victor Berger and others, of course, um, that pushed for Social Security. It didn't just come out of thin air or the well-intentioned sort of ideas that that, that rich boy fucking FDR had. Um you know, like these, like the, the progressives of this era were very influential because they weren't fucking around. They were serious and they had already accomplished many things. The, the parks in, in Milwaukee during that time were established. Uh, I mean, just epic. Uh, no other city had ever seen this kind of work. You know, like the electrical grid, the sewers. All kinds of things were cleaned up and, and, and all kinds of things were improved um, under Victor Berger's uh, representation of Milwaukee, which spanned quite a while, you know. So it provides a really good kind of source of, you know, inspiration. Um, I don't know. I don't know what word I'm looking for. I mean, there's a lot of information there just waiting for us to fucking crack a book and discover. And it's shocking to me how many people are completely unfamiliar with this entire era. It's not just Victor Berger. It's people like Robert McFarlane, on and on and on. If there's only one guy to rally behind, it becomes this stupid fucking messiah figure kind of mentality that we all need to break the fuck away from. And any kind of movement that's going to affect genuine change and last has got to come from a deeper place than just, uh, we'll wait for Bernie Sanders to save us or AOC or or whoever the fuck ever in the Green Party, you know, I mean, it's got a, the idea of what happened in Milwaukee is that it wasn't just Victor Berger. It, it was a labor movement that he had a lot to do with and di- different unions working together, you know, that sort of thing. I, anyway, I don't mean to drone on. Um, if, if you're not, <clears throat> um, informed about this, uh, Personally, I think it would make for a great show to expose people to different ideas that, that uh, you know, they haven't come across yet for whatever reason. I mean, the curriculum in our schools is dog shit. That's <laughs> a big problem, you know. But, like, if, if you look from that era, like the, the Progressive Party platform, I think it was 1912. Go look at that. You know, people don't know anything about that. You know, they think the progressives came from the Democratic Party. <laughs> they have no idea what the fuck is going on in their own history. And then they talk about like Marxism as if 
you know, like they skip over an entire segment of maybe the most relevant information to actually affecting change in the United States. And they jump over to, you know, this guy over there. They, you know, is, it makes them look like they, you know, achieved some level of education, you know, but they're stumbling over what could help them without even seeing it. It's kind of where I'm getting at. I, you know, like other things, like people haven't read, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, I'll bring him up again. They haven't read uh, his Man in the, Are- the Arena speech. Uh, I think it's officially called uh, Citizenship. Sorry, Citizenship in a Republic. It was like 1910, I think, at the Sorbonne. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's not, it's not like Theodore Roosevelt necessarily needs to be uh, seen as a champion. You know, he had, he definitely had all kinds of flaws that are very inconsistent with progressive ideals. But he had all kinds of, there's all kinds of valuable insight to be found in the words that he used and and the tactics he took in fighting corruption, you know, and the role that everyday people should play in in, uh, coordinating efforts to take part in that as well. Just my thoughts, sorry. Yeah, well, I, I, I definitely agree that people should learn more about people like Victor Berger. Sorry, um, there's just a lot of noise from your mic. So um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to mute you, Derek, um, just because there's a lot of noise. I get a lot of that. Don't worry. Um, no, it was, it was because there was a lot of noise from your mic. I'm not muting you because of what you said. I, I agree with you. I think people need to study this history more. I agree that, you know, I certainly know much more about Eugene Debs than Berger. And I, I'm going to do more research on this. I think it's a good idea. Um, I, there, I do have a few thoughts about it I mean, in terms of the progressive era. I think, one, we have to keep in mind that what, what led to the end of the progressive era was McCarthyism. Well, the first Red Scare and then later McCarthyism. But the first Red Scare... Uh, was the U.S. government massively cracking down on many of these people. I mentioned that I had the reason I had heard of Berger is because I know he was one of the people with like um, Big Bill Haywood and others who was targeted by the U.S. government under the Espionage Act crackdown. So, you know, it's it's important to study that history and learn what they were able to accomplish. But it's also important to keep in mind that because they were able to accomplish that, the U.S. government cracked down and, you know, the billionaire oligarchs at that time, the Rockefellers today, who would be, you know, the Bezos and Zuckerbergs of our day, they cracked down to prevent those kinds of progressive era politicians from having more influence, especially from parties like the Socialist Party. We saw that the IWW was basically destroyed by the U.S. government. The Socialist Party was criminalized. Eugene Debs was imprisoned. I know that Victor Berger was was targeted by the Espionage Act. So, yeah, it's very important to study that history. And I also agree that it's not known enough. And I, obviously, I think that's there's a reason why that history is hidden by powerful interests. It's not taught in schools because they don't want, you know, kids in schools in the U.S. to learn about this radical socialist history. They only want them to know about the Democrats and Republicans and blah, blah, blah. So, I think you raised some really good points and, and it's definitely something that I'll, I'm going to think more about how I could do, you know, you brought, brought up the idea of doing like, um, a show about this having, and I could bring on like a historian and, 
who, who's an expert on this history. We Earlier with Andrew, I was talking about, or it was actually before Andrew, but someone else I was talking about, um, a lot of this history I just learned through Howard Zinn. And I know Howard Zinn is one of the go-to historians for understanding a lot of this history of the labor movement in the U.S. and the progressive era and everything. Um, I, I will say that from what I know from reading Zinn, that he was actually kind of a critic of the progressive era because his point was that a lot of like the so-called progressive era with a capital P and capital E, a lot of those politicians were trying to contain the revolutionary energy to prevent, you know, that from, from spilling over into a revolution. They wanted to, to hold it, hold it in the tap. And I believe it was actually Teddy Roosevelt, um, if I remember correctly from Zinn, it was Roosevelt who wrote a letter to his brother, I believe, in which he said that someday you will see that reform is truly conservative because it conserves the system and prevents it, you know, from being a revolution. So there's, I think that it's the progressive era and, and especially when we're talking about Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, um, speak softly and carry a big stick and the kind of imperialist foreign policy that goes with that. There's things we need to learn that there are strong weaknesses, but I think I agree with you that there are also many good things from the progressive era. And also there, there were socialist politicians like Berger and others who were able to achieve power. And I think we definitely, we should study that history warts and all. So um, I'll just, I'll bring you back Derek to conclude and then I have to run, but just because I muted you, if you have any final thoughts here. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. Cool. I came back inside, so the wind's not blowing around messing with the audio. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I think there was – what else was I going to – I was going to briefly ask. Um, oh, yeah, I earlier on uh, uh, two different uh, call-in spots. I'm waiting for my car to get fixed today, so I, I have free time. Um, so I'm pushing buttons and causing trouble. <laughs> um, but uh, I – I uh, brought up uh, Boutros, Boutros, Gale, uh twice, two different spots on calling. Uh, as of yet, uh, just one person was vaguely familiar, kind of, sort of, maybe. wasn't very convincing. Um, with Boutros, Boutros, Gale's agenda for peace, specifically. Um, I think that would be another incredibly good topic of conversation. I never come across anyone who knows anything about an agenda for peace. Um, an ancient guy from Egypt once, who was a former professor of chemistry at the UW Madison, Wisconsin. He was great. Yeah, UN, Secret- UN Secretary General as well. Right, right. But an agenda for peace was what he presented as a Secretary General of the United Nations. Um, yeah, I, from... Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, for people who don't know, this is a this is basically his proposal for the world. This is after the first Cold War ended, and it was basically his way of proposing a kind of peace plan for the world based on you know mutual development after the end of the first Cold War, and basically saying that this this could be a moment that we can work together for economic development. And of course, pretty much everything that he proposed was ignored and then the u.s government waged war around the world destroyed yugoslavia attacked iraq okay. yeah I, I agree i think uh Boutrous, like Boutrous guy is an interesting guy and it also represents i think a kind of history of the u.n that is not 
that is not well known because in the past few decades, the UN has been dominated, you know, right now by like a Portuguese politician. It's been really dominated by a lot of pro-Western people. But there was a time there when the UN had global South representation and there were people who were kind of like sympathetic to the non-aligned movement, like Boutros, Boutros Ghali. And I think I agree that people should learn that history as well. Yeah, I mean, an agenda for peace. It sounds like you have read it, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, not recently, but I've I vaguely I vaguely right. I've read about it in books, and I know who Butrus Butrus Ghali is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I, I'm sure if you've read it, then you you're instantly on the same page that I am, where it just strikes you as, oh my god, this is just obvious, incredibly insightful, thoughtful, cogently expressed like super common sense approaches to increasing peace and uh, trust among nations uh, to resolve conflicts or prevent conflicts from ever starting. And it's not even that long and it's a super easy read, you know, and yet all of these people that are very much, you know, in favor of stopping perpetual warfare and, you know, care so much about other countries and all the damage it's caused by, what, what we do, uh, and what's, what, what's done around the world. They, they're completely unaware of what I think is probably the most important statement about, you know, improving peace, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I don't know if I would call it the most important. I think it is significant, but again, the, the thing I, the, the perspective that I have is that figures like Butrus, Butrus Ghali, represented this kind of global south non-aligned movement perspective that the u.s crushed i mean it's coming back now and and that's what i do a lot of my journalism is showing back how it's coming back it's showing how it's coming back but really from after him from then on until like the last few years since the 1990s the world has been dominated by the u.s empire which has taken over the u.n and made it a very undemocratic institution and prevented a lot of people like Boutros Boutros Ghali from being able to implement those policies. So, yeah, and I agree that it's it's important to understand that history, but we need to understand like why why they were ultimately unsuccessful, and it's because right. powerful interests defeated them. Right, but what's also relevant is that he uh, was not reelected, and the reason exactly. why he was not reelected as Secretary General is because Bill Clinton decided not to support him because the uh, election for secretary general happened to coincide with uh, a U.S. presidential election between him and Bob Dole. And uh, for whatever scummy, ridiculous reasons, uh, Bill Clinton decided that Boutros Boutros Ghali sounded too foreign to voters or whatever it was. At the time, he led Bob Dole by like 25, 30 points. It didn't even make sense. But he did it anyway. He didn't need to do it to win an election. He did it anyway. You know, so I think it's important for people to understand where this comes from specifically and lay the goddamn blame on who deserves it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting, interesting thoughts to to let percolate and and especially on, on the idea of like the progressive era. That's something that. I'm going to think about more and, and how I can maybe bring on like a, an expert historian to discuss all of that. But I do want to thank everyone who joined. Um, I do have to run because it's almost an hour, almost an hour and a half this episode. So 
I want to thank everyone. I do two of these a week. So if anyone wants to come back and join the discussion and ask any questions, I will be back next week. Um, usually I do it maybe like um, kind of Tuesday or Wednesday and then Thursday or Friday. So um, this week it was Wednesday and Friday and usually it's around that time. So definitely check out here at Colin um, twice a week. And then of course, all these episodes are available as a podcast afterward, which people can find on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else. So thanks to everyone and I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.